0: When I was six years old, I was sitting in my kindergarten class and somehow I got possession of the class stapler. It was very much like this, a nice swing line stapler. And uh, I, uh, out of sheer curiosity, I unfolded the stapler and with my thumb right here on the hammer, I squeezed the stapler and put a staple right into my thumb. Y'all, that is a pain that I can still feel. (laughs) It haunts me. Blinding pain. So they rush me to the nurse. The nurse calls my mom. My mom comes and rushes me to the doctor, and the doctor pulls out a pair of pliers. I kid you not, a pair of pliers. And so he's trying to keep me calm. My mom's, you know, they're keeping me calm by asking me, how did this happen? What happened? Well, as only a six-year-old could, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to look stupid. So I just told them, well, you know, I, I squeezed the stapler and the staple went up into the air and then it came down and landed in my thumb. And they just, they played along so compassionately. They said, oh yeah, that's very common. We see a lot of that, you know. Um, I, I know as a kid, you did something like this. As a parent, you've experienced this with your own kids. Some story, some kind of excuse, it's so obviously made up. It's completely irrational. And yet, from the child's perspective, hey, they're going to fall for this. It makes sense to me. It'll make sense to them as well. They're going to fall for it. Well, today, we actually come to a place like that in the Scripture. Uh, but unfortunately, the problem we face in the Bible today is much more severe than my little six-year-old trip to the doctor. And the people we're dealing with are not children. They're full-grown adults. And I'm just going to go ahead and warn us up front. Exodus 32 is one of the grossest and most embarrassing failures recorded in all the Bible. And in the context of everything else that's been going on in Exodus it really feels like it comes out of nowhere. It should come as a shock to us. Because if if we remember where we've been along the way in the narrative of this great book, God miraculously and graciously has rescued his people, Israel, out of slavery to Egypt. And he has now brought them all the way to Mount Sinai, where God establishes a covenant with them and with their leader, Moses. And all of this God has done in fulfillment of promises that he made way back to Father Abraham. And so God, there at the mountain, commands the people to obey his voice and keep his covenant. And the people, without any reservation, they are all in with the Lord. Whatever the Lord says, we will do. The people affirm it more than once. And so Moses goes up on Mount Sinai into the cloud of God's glory and he meets there with God for 40 days while the people remain at the foot of the mountain. And this is where things unravel so quickly and so dramatically we would laugh out loud if it wasn't so awful. Look with me at Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. Now, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. And bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. There's so much wrong here, it's hard to even know where to start, right? In Moses' absence up on the mountain, the people grow impatient And even a little doubtful, they're not really sure if Moses is coming back. And so they come to his brother, Aaron, and compel him to make for us a God who will go before us. Now, where did that idea come from? Y'all, we should recognize certainly something that is true of the people of Israel. They have spent their entire lives in Egypt, generations in fact, before them, 400 years plus they were in Egypt. And so certainly they were accustomed to statues and images that were in the form of physical idols that represented the, the, the Egyptian gods. And so they understood that, that way of worship, they were accustomed to that. But this was explicitly uh, uh, rebuked and disallowed By God himself in the giving of the Ten Commandments. We realize, I hope right here, that Israel all at once is breaking the first three of the Ten Commandments, at least. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord says. You shall make no graven images to worship, not even of what you think I'm like. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not make God's name empty. They are running right past the essential commands that God started them with when he made covenant with them. And so, y'all, as we read this, I mean, it ought to shock our system to see just how quickly the people go from pledging allegiance to God and his word to now total abandonment, both of God's own self-revelation to them and also of Moses, God's appointed leader for the people. And maybe even more shocking than that is Aaron. My goodness. Our Aaron, Pastor Aaron, he's on vacation today, so there's no confusing here. I'm going to be hard on Aaron, and y'all hopefully will know where I'm coming from. Aaron goes completely along with this. And it's, it's, again, a shock because, one, Aaron is Moses' brother. As the people are bad-mouthing Moses behind his back, Aaron does not come to his brother's defense And even more, Aaron, we saw last week, Aaron is God's appointed high priest. God's representative, his mediator between the people and the Lord. Aaron is the one person in this scenario who should have sounded the alarm and said, are y'all insane? We would never do this. But instead, Aaron takes up all their gold earrings. This was his plan. He takes all their gold earrings and uses them to fashion a golden calf a young bull, an ancient symbol of strength and fertility. And the people look upon this statue and say, this is our God who led us out of Egypt. Aaron then builds an altar for it, and they throw a great big feast. They offer sacrifices, and the scripture implies uh, immorality. They rose up to play. They didn't make a volleyball pit, y'all. That means... They were doing things they ought not to do. Something uh, that should strike us as we read this is how quickly and how naturally the people turn from God and His Word. And I'll just say this. It's often the case when we read the Bible, especially places like this concerning Israel. Y'all, I know it's very easy. You might be doing it in your mind right now. Sitting there saying, well, if I had been there, I would have never acted like this. I wouldn't have gone along with something like this. But y'all, I don't know. I like to think that way of myself. I like to think better of me too, but I don't know. Somehow, of all the hundreds of thousands of people that make up the nation, including their leaders, nobody seems to object. Joshua was halfway up the mountain. I'm sure he would have objected. Moses certainly objects here in a moment. We'll see that. But nobody else seemed to have a problem with this. Who's to say I would be any different? And this should be, I hope, a sobering word for us today. Anytime we look into the the stories of the Scripture, we're meant to hold a mirror up to our own face, our own life. John Calvin, a great many years ago, said, the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. The human mind, the human nature is a perpetual factory of idols of idols, meaning we are always creating idols for ourselves, things to love and worship. And if we understand what idolatry is at its root, then we will not maybe distance ourselves so much from a story like this. Because I know if you're like me, say, I've never bowed down to a statue or a totem pole or a a painting. But that's not the the limitation of this word and what it means for us. Y'all, idolatry is the heart preferring and loving anything over God. Anything. Anything the heart loves and prefers over or other than God. And in that case, y'all, we could fashion an idol out of money, career, success, sports, romance, reputation, pleasure, family entertainment smartphones anything anything you name it and so i'll 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 go first in confessing this today it's so easy for me to sit in judgment over israel and the golden calf while at the same time justifying all the ways in which my own heart is inclined to worship and love other things. I look down on Israel for their obvious sin, while at the same time justifying what I consider to be my lesser sins and loves and idolatries. And so here's the truth for us. I trust that you can fill in your own blanks as to what these loves might be, the potential idols that we all are inclined to. But here's what makes this particular sin so awful and so destructive. Um, Idolatry is, in some sense, the root of every other sin. We we spoke on this a few weeks ago. Martin Luther said that every sin comes from a breaking of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is to say, idolatry, a love for something, anything other than God, is perhaps the root sin, the greatest sin in that regard. And here's why. Y'all, idolatry is a direct assault on the heart of God. Think about what we do when we love something else over and above Him. We're taking the Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, the ruler of all things, who loved me and created me in His image. It's me taking God and setting Him to the side in favor of something else that is finite and temporary and less valuable by definition. It's me saying to God, I love and prefer this thing over you. And so idolatry is not merely breaking a command of God. It is that, but it's more. It's breaking God's very heart. It's breaking covenant with Him. This is what we see in the people of Israel, so quickly hardening their own hearts stiffening their necks toward the God who has loved them and saved them. And by the counting of the calendar in Exodus, it hasn't even been that long. It's not like they could have forgotten. Here's the outcome that I want us to see. Two things that come from the telling of this account as Moses records it. The first is what we would expect, even though it's hard to read. It's the exercise of righteous judgment. This will not go unpunished. But then secondly, there is a pointer here in Exodus 32, an arrow, that points us to an undeserved mercy. Righteous judgment and undeserved mercy are both here in the text. And so what happens next? After all of this immorality and idolatry, the Lord signals to Moses up on the mountain, what's going on, and tells him to get down there right away. Now look down at verse 19. "'It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hand, the Ten Commandments, and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire,' and ground it into powder, and scattered it over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. This is a symbolic form of judgment here. Drinking down into yourself the judgment of your sin, becoming as your idol is to you, taking it in in all of its corruption and poison. It's a picture of the impurity that these people have taken on for themselves and what they've done. They drink it down. Now look at verse 21. Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt... We do not know what has become of him. I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It's okay to laugh at this point. Y'all, Aaron is a full-grown adult. Not to mention he's the high priest of God. And he comes up with the most five-year-old story anybody's ever heard. Makes my stapler story looks like Shakespeare. <laughs> but you know what's interesting here? It's not just Aaron acting a fool. This speaks to us of the irrationality of sin. Sin is not rational. You can never talk yourself through sin in such a way that it makes sense and accords with what is good and right. There is no such sin that can be justified in that way. And so if we ask the question, how could Aaron, how could the people of Israel possibly rationalize such obvious and gross idolatry? Well, the answer is they can't. But how could I rationalize any of my own sins? How could I justify to myself loving anything other than, Than God, Anything less than God in light of who God is and all that He is to me and to you in light of all that God has said, sin doesn't make sense in that way. We never have a good reason for it. Any of our explanations end up sounding like a five or six year old trying to make sense of the world in hopes of deceiving others or even deceiving our own hearts. The heart is deceitful and sin is deceitful. And Aaron and all of Israel have fallen to its bait, to its temptation. Don't think that we're better. Don't think that we're better. With this sin comes the sharp edge of judgment, as I mentioned already, the righteous judgment of God. And if you would, look down at verse 26 and we'll see it. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. <clears throat> now this that reads almost like the levites slayed men at random. But much more likely these 3000 represent the ringleaders of the idolatry or at least those who refused to repent of their sin when it became known. But y'all in either case that when we read scripture like this it's meant to stop us in our tracks. Those who trampled over God's name and His holiness and His mercy would not go unpunished. Sin has terrible consequences. Idolatry of any kind arouses the righteous anger of God as it should. Which is why if we recognize within our own hearts, if we look into the mirror here and see in me, any kind of idolatrous corruption, it ought to stop us and grieve us, and we should repent at the first sign of it, putting it away. We should tolerate idolatry no more than God Himself does, no more than Moses does. We should not make provision or space for it in our lives. Not just because we're scared of what might happen, but because we understand the very root of it, giving our hearts to anything other than the God who made us and loves us and redeems us. Any such idolatry always arouses God's anger and His judgment. And therefore, it has no place in our lives. But y'all, here's the turning point in this scripture and for us, the turning point that we do, you know, every week here at Harvest Church. It's obvious, I hope, as we read this story and as we take inventory of our own lives, there's no hope in me to overcome this. Given enough time and opportunity, I, even if I'm able to remove one idol from the heart, I'll always replace it with something else. Even if I get really disciplined or if I feel guilty enough and do something to bring about change in my life, I'll find a replacement. My heart will do it. I can't fix this problem on my own. Neither can you. And so the only hope we have, the only hope Israel had, is that God would be gracious to us and that God would provide a way out. And it's here in Exodus 32 today, we get a wonderful pointer to this mercy, an arrow that shows us the way. Go back with me now, if you would, to Exodus 32, verse 9 here. And look at this conversation between Moses and the Lord, in verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, "I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people, stiff-necked. Now then let me alone, and that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, O oh Lord." Why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now this is a very peculiar conversation, isn't it? it appears at surface level that God really does plan to wipe out the whole nation, all of them, save for Moses, and start over again. But then Moses talks him out of it by reminding God of his saving purposes and his covenant promises so that the Lord changes his mind. Now, we should always tread very carefully in moments like this, so that we don't overreach in our interpretation of any Scripture. Let's go back to foundational things here concerning God, His nature, and His character. Would the Lord actually destroy the nation of Israel in contradiction to His prior covenant promises to them? No. God would do no such thing. In fact, Moses is appealing to God on this very basis. These are the people that you not only brought out of Egypt, but you swore by yourself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you would multiply them and give them the land. And so Moses is, in a sense, it's not that Moses is having to talk God off the ledge here, but Moses is serving as the covenant mouthpiece to remind the Lord, in a sense, of his promises, to affirm the promises, not because God forgets or not because God could somehow potentially violate these promises. And y'all, whenever we're reading the Scripture and we think, man, what God's doing here seems odd. It seems like God's doing something evil. Or it seems like God is is on the cusp of violating a promise. We always come back to foundational things as to who God is. God cannot un-God Himself by breaking a promise. It's something He simply cannot do. God cannot commit evil as if He were the author of evil because in God, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God cannot lie. And these things serving as the foundation, Moses is interceding for the people by affirming God's nature and character and promise and His prevailing covenant commitment. And so when we read here that God changes his mind, we're not thinking of God as if he were one of us. I changed my mind. And and that's an actual change in the sense that I had no prior uh, context or consensus. I'm changing course. That's not necessarily what the Lord is doing here. He's changing course concerning what he threatened, but God in no sense changes. His commitment to his people cannot fail. And so, of course, God upholds the covenant promise He makes to Israel, even though they haven't deserved it. They do deserve destruction. They do deserve judgment. But God still prevails in His mercy. He does not fail His end of the covenant. And so even as we bear witness to a very harsh and sharp judgment and punishment in this chapter, we're also seeing, I hope, a very clear, amazing, undeserved mercy. This arrow, this pointer showing us something about God and pointing us to something ultimately about Jesus. And so last scripture in in Exodus 32, we're going to look at. Go now down to verse 30. On the next day, verse 30 says, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now this is really an amazing thing. Moses goes to God, seeking atonement for Israel, saying, blot me out of your book, Lord, rather than them. Cut me off. Punish me. Kill me. And let them live. What a noble and sacrificial offer Moses is making. But do you notice what God says in response? No. No. Moses cannot serve as a sacrifice or substitute for the people. He cannot bear the responsibility nor the penalty for the sins of others. Who can This is not a category that Moses really possessed. He's going out on a limb here, hoping that perhaps he could serve as a substitute for the people, but God will not allow it. But y'all, there's one person and only one who can. This is rhetorical, but I want you to tell me now of whom these words are spoken In Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Who is righteous enough to stand in the place for a world of sinners? Who is perfect enough to serve as a substitute for all who deserve judgment? Who is so powerful and so glorious that through his own death he could grant life to the world? I heard my man Shelby over there. Thank you. I said rhetorical, but y'all y'all are hey, y'all are ahead of the game here. That's good. Jesus. What does the scripture tell us about Jesus Christ? First Peter, Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just For the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Romans 5, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Titus 2, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. 2 Corinthians 5, he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. There is no atonement for sin that we can make that would cover the expanse that could possibly atone for our idolatry. There's nothing we can do. There's no hope within us. Our only hope is that God Himself would provide it for us. And this is the good news, the pointer, the arrow that Exodus is showing us today. Y'all, for all the great things Moses was, there was one thing he could never be. A Savior. Only the divine Son of God can bear the full penalty of our sin. And there in its place grant to us the full measure of His own righteousness. He didn't just pay the penalty to bring us back to zero or to neutral. He gives us His own righteousness. He makes us perfect in the eyes of His heavenly Father. Only Jesus has the power and also the mercy to forgive the great idolatry of our hearts and all the sins that spring up from them. And He does this freely for anyone who turns to Him and trusts Him to receive His grace. If you and I are in any way mired in idolatry, devoting our hearts to lesser things, then there is a resounding hope for us today. There's a resounding call of God the Father to us as His children today. May we look full face, full heartedly into the redeeming grace of Jesus. May we be consumed with love for Him in light of His consuming love for us, which He demonstrated for us on the cross. May we receive Him today for what He really is. The greatest and most lasting treasure in all the universe. The only solution for the idolatrous heart is that a greater love, a greater affection and devotion might take its place once and for all. And when we look to Jesus Christ, when we turn our eyes upon Him, everything else grows strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we have this morning, I pray, a sobering word and reality to consider. Father, we can, we can certainly recognize and maybe even poke fun a little at Israel for such silliness and ridiculous idolatry. But Father, show us that the nature of our hearts is in no way, shape, or form different. We're just as human as they were. We're just as we have just as much potential as they did. Lord, to harden ourselves, to stiffen our necks, to forget you, and to chase after anything else that we might esteem as good or worthy or helpful or promising or pleasurable. Father, if if we have this potential in our hearts, and we do, then, Father, sober us up. Show us the deceitfulness of sin. Show us, Lord, even in ways that, that make us uncomfortable, where we have traded You in for something so much less, so fleeting, perhaps even harmful. But even, Lord, if we have found something good, like our families that we've loved and, and, and given ourselves to more than you, Father, even though it be a good thing. Father, show us this morning that nothing is ultimate outside of you, nothing. You deserve the highest praise. You are our greatest treasure. And Lord, everything else will be blessed, will be fruitful and more joyful Lord, if it takes its proper place under the grace of Jesus. And so, Father, help us this morning, if we are natural idolaters, that we would see the beauty and the grace and the worth and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And turn our eyes to Him, turn wholeheartedly to Him, in recognition of who He is to us and all that He's done. And Lord, let any lesser love take orbit around Him. And perhaps, Lord, if these loves are sinful, Lord, that they would be expunged and expelled, put away in favor of Him because He deserves our whole heart. Father, thank You that this is not a command in a vacuum. Father, You ask for our hearts. You command our whole life in light of your heart given to us, in light of your grace poured out in its fullness, you have given your Son. And so, Father, may we be the people, the apple of your eye, the treasure of your heart, in so many ways, Father. May we we be the people who treasure you in kind. Turn our hearts all the way that they might be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we might run to Him with all our energies. Father God, thank You that You have made provision and mercy for this prayer to even be possible. Turn us to Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen.